Hi, everyone. Before we get into the episode, just a quick note. We are thrilled to have Med Mastery as our sponsor today. Let's hear from the creator, Dr. Franz Wiesbauer. Okay, so with Med Mastery, I created the platform that I wished I would have had when I was a resident. When I trained at the Medical University of Vienna, at the General Hospital of Vienna, we had two rooms in the entire hospital where you could actually learn echo. And there were two echo techs in there. And everyone in the hospital who wanted to learn echo had to rotate through those two rooms. So there's a real bottleneck there. And I thought to myself, that doesn't make sense at all. It should be much easier to learn echo than that. And that's where I came up with the idea for Met Mastery. After producing successful echo courses, we tackled other courses in cardiology, but also outside of cardiology, point of care ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound, CT, chest x-ray, interpretation of important lab values, epidemiology. And uh, we started working together with some of the best educators in the field. To get 15% off any of the subscriptions on all the classes that they offer, you can visit www.medmastery.com backslash coreim for 15% off. Also, this episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. Click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. The patient is looking at a positive result, and then they've inevitably gone to the internet and looked up lupus, and it creates a lot of anxiety. That's Dr. Beth Jonas, a rheumatologist at UNC. And welcome to the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and today I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Mithu, a rheumatologist at Duke University. And hi, I'm Anne-Marie Kumfer, a hospitalist at UNC. And today we'll be talking about one of the more common causes for a rheumatology referral, a positive ANA. And if you ever wondered whether you should check that ANA or not and what to do with a positive result, this episode is for you. I certainly have some room for improvement in this area. Uh, and I promise <laughs> that's not going to be the worst part. <sighs> so early into the episode. Oh, sorry, I can't resist a good pun. Okay, so let's get into the pearls we'll be covering today. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, ANA titer. Is a positive ANA always significant? What does the titer mean? And does the pattern of the ANA help? Pearl 2, the history. What patient histories should we not get an ANA for? And what patient histories should raise your suspicion for autoimmunity? Pearl 3. The physical exam. How can you use the physical exam to assess the likelihood of autoimmune disease? Pearl 4. Differential for positive ANA. What are other conditions besides autoimmune disease that's associated with a positive ANA? Pearl 5. Next steps. Once an ANA comes back positive, what are the next steps for evaluation? Let's start off with some foundation and maybe start with what actually is an ANA? 
This is a complicated concept, and I don't think people always make the connection easily. ANAs are basically autoantibodies against antigens that are in the nucleus. So just think about things in our nucleus like DNA, RNA, histones, and the like. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's why we have anti-double-strand DNA antibodies or anti-histone antibodies. These are all antibodies against things that are inside the nucleus. That makes a lot of sense. But what makes less sense is how can the body create these antibodies to antigens that are actually hidden inside the nucleus? It's always kind of a bit of a head scratcher, right? So if if the antigens are inside the nucleus, how does how does the body see them and create antibody to them? And and the reason for that probably has to do with what we think may be one pathogenic process in systemic lupus and probably a number of other autoimmune diseases, and that is sort of dysregulated apoptosis. So um, apoptosis is regulated cell death, right? So the cell breaks down, and in that process, antigens that might be in the nucleus come out of the cell or sit on the surface of the cell and therefore create an immune response, which may include the activation of B cells and producing autoantibodies. But it really has to do with um, probably dysregulated cell death. Oh, okay. So disordered cell breakdown triggers the body to create these antibodies. Right. So then does having those autoantibodies against components of the nucleus mean that it's actually clinically significant? To answer that, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say that I randomly send an ANA test on 100 people without autoimmune disease. How many do you guys think would be positive? I don't know, handful, few, five, 10, maybe? So up to 20% of the otherwise healthy population is ANA positive, depending on how the test is done. And that dramatically limits its ability to be used as a screening test. Nevertheless, in the right setting, it's quite informative. That's Dr. Pizetsky, a rheumatologist at Duke who does research on autoantibodies. And again, that's 20% of the healthy population. Particularly if they are women, that's quite the high false positive rate. Proceed with caution. That is so humbling. What, what about the titer? Does the titer help at all? Come to think of it, actually, can we just go over the titer real quick? I think the last time I sent an ANA, the results showed a titer of 1 to 160. And I remember I had to pause and remind myself, wait, Is that number being high, good, or bad? (laughs) Which way does it make me think? The way I think about it conceptually is that the higher your second number, the more antibody there is, and that means the longer it takes to dilute the antibody out in the lab, resulting in a higher titer. All right, got it. So higher the second number of the titer, the higher risk of autoimmune disease. I'm so glad you hedged and said higher risk of autoimmune disease, because this is where ANA titers start to get really messy. Really? Huh. I guess maybe you're alluding to false positives. Are there false positives even if the titer is high? Like what about a titer of one to 80? That's not nothing. Does that have false positives? Hate to break it to you, Shreya, but you might be surprised 15% of healthy people walking around have a titer of one to 80, but have no autoimmune disease. Really? What about like if we kick it up a notch, an ANA titer of one to 160? Yep. Studies have shown 5% of people have a titer of one to 160 with no autoimmune disease. Really? What about like a crazy high titer? Like I'm talking one to 2560. It might be hard to believe, but even at high titers like one to 2560, 1% of otherwise healthy people are walking around with that high of a titer. Wow. So it sounds like a high titer is generally more concerning, but people without autoimmune disease can still have a high titer. 
So then on the flip side, does a low titer exclude autoimmune disease? This is also like a little bit of area of a controversy. Someone says to me, what titer do you consider positive? Well, it really depends on the history and physical. So if someone has a really really compelling story and physical exam, and the ANA is 1 to 80, that means something to me. Now, let's say on the other hand, someone has a higher titer, like 1 to 160 or more, but they have no symptoms and nothing on their physical exam, then I wouldn't take that titer very seriously. I wish there was a specific black and white titer threshold that we could hang our hat on in rheumatology for what's a positive ANA. But unfortunately, there's no specific titer. Ugh, if only it would totally have made my job easier. Ugh, I know, right? But it sounds like the ANA is just another data point in addition to our history, our exam, and all that. But gosh, I do wish there was some easy, clear cutoff. Ugh, I hear you, Shreya. I wish that we had a very clear-cut positive threshold. But I will say, if we were pressed to give an answer to that question, most rheumatologists consider a titer of 1 to 160 or higher as positive. But as Dr. Jonas said, you can still have a connective tissue disease with a lower titer if the story fits. Hmm, okay. What about the pattern of the ANA? Does a pattern, say it's speckled, nuclear, homogenous, Does that help us uh, take the ANA more seriously or narrow down what's going on? If you get your ANA and they tell you it's a centromere pattern, particularly if it's in a high titer, that's very, very helpful. But short of that, I don't generally pay a whole lot of attention to the pattern at all. Got it. So a centromere pattern can suggest scleroderma, especially in a patient with reflux, skin thickening, Raynaud's. But otherwise, the ANA pattern is pretty nonspecific. Oh, gosh. I just want to say I really appreciate diving into ANA a bit more and, and just how much importance should I place on that particular lab finding? Because I think I'm always toying between, should I send this patient to room or not? And I just want to feel more confident in the test. So it is by no means unusual that in one laboratory, the patient has a positive result. In another laboratory, they have a negative result or the pattern comes out differently. It's very confusing both for the provider and also for the patient because they saw one provider and they said, oh, I'm worried about you. You may have a connective tissue disease or rheumatic disease because your ANA is positive. Send them on to a rheumatologist and what happens is now the test is negative. They go, what happened? Uh, So probably a different kit. Oh, wow. Things got more confusing. The variation just (laughs) based on the kit is such a letdown to hear. I know. I had no idea kit variation was a thing. And maybe the takeaway is that we should counsel our patients, hey, we don't need to hang too much hat on this and maybe we can repeat it. Yes, it is very annoying. And one reason for the variation may be that there are two ways to test the ANA, an IFA and an ELISA. The good news is that most places use the IFA, which is more sensitive. But sometimes I see labs that have been sent using an ELISA, and that can contribute to lab discrepancies. Okay, so I've got one last burning question from the rheumatology experts. I've had patients with positive ANAs, but absolutely no symptoms of autoimmune disease. What should I tell them? So that was an interesting study. They looked at military recruits, like I think about 100 and maybe 150 military recruits who were ultimately diagnosed with lupus. And because when you're in the military, you donate your blood every so often and they bank it somewhere, they went back in those patients to see 
what was going on years before the diagnosis of lupus. And what they found was that in many of those patients, there were autoantibodies present in the blood for years. The ANAs were there. And the earliest antibodies tend to be ANA and the anti-Rho and the anti-La. And then as they got closer to the diagnosis of lupus, things like Smith antibody and double-stranded DNA. Wow. I cannot believe that some cases had a positive ANA for nine years before they developed any symptoms. What we really don't know is of the X percent of patients who have an ANA who are completely and utterly asymptomatic, what percentage of those patients are going to go on to develop disease? So that that study didn't really answer that question, not in any appreciable way. So what I generally tell my patients is the vast majority of people with an ANA today are probably never going to have an autoimmune disease. But then we're left with this marker that at least in some studies suggests that you might have one in the future. And I can't say with 100% certainty that you won't, but what I can say is that the likelihood is low. And if you have a change in your signs and symptoms, that's the kind of thing we need to look at. Okay, so let's recap then. Having a positive ANA is not the same thing as having an autoimmune disease. And I still can't believe that one in five adults who are otherwise healthy are kind of just walking around with a positive ANA, and this is especially true if they're women. And as a general rule of thumb, yes, the higher, the tighter, the more likely there is an autoimmune disease, but having a low titer does not exclude it, especially if the history and physical exam fit, which is something we'll delve into a bit more in Pearl 2 and 3. Now that we've covered nuances of the actual ANA test and know that so much of the weight that we put on the test goes back to the clinical picture, let's unpack the different histories that may make your antennas go up or down about sending that ANA. And if we start with some low-hanging fruits, uh, it's, you know, it's really easy when there's a classic textbook story or very clear history of organ involvement, then sending the ANA makes a lot of sense. Obviously, if you have somebody who has much more severe disease, they've got glomerulonephritis, they've got pleurisy, they've got pericarditis, they've got other things that we generally associated with, associate with lupus or autoimmunity, then the test is going to be very, very helpful to you. Let's just say it was ANA positive woman, low white count, anemic, low platelet count, active urinary sediment, creatinine a bit up. I want to know anti-DNA. I want to know complement. I really want to know what's going on. Yeah, sometimes it's super clear and that's great. But a lot of times when I was in clinic, I'd be talking to patients with fatigue or joint pain and they would sometimes ask if they could have lupus. And in those cases, it was hard to decide if I should send that ANA. If the symptoms have been going on for 10 years or more and they're mild and there's nothing specific, I probably would not order an ANA because if there's nothing more organ-specific, then you're going to end in a place where you're not going to know what to do. And there may be nothing to do. Yeah, nothing to do or lead you and your patient down a rabbit hole. I feel like I particularly struggle in differentiating if it's more fibromyalgia or autoimmune disease or sometimes both. I think one thing that helps me is thinking about the odds ratio. And one thing I found helpful was looking at what are the highest odds ratios for lupus um, compared to fibromyalgia. And so asking about things like rash, fever, 
easy bruising, hair loss, and coming in at the highest odds ratio of around three, asking about Raynaud's. I usually ask patients about Raynaud's phenomenon by asking them something like, do you notice in the cold that your fingers are turning different colors, like white or blue? <laughs> That's a cool approach. Boom, boom. <laughs> I'm going to get fired if I have any more of these puns. So let's move on <laughs> yes. and go through some high yield questions to ask. So a couple of things that I think um, um, helpful in that is sun sensitivity. Do you get sick when you're in the sun? And that sometimes will make somebody's eyes go wide and go, oh yeah, you know, that definitely happens. That's a clue. I always ask about sicka complex, so dry eyes and dry mouth. Most patients will not associate that with their arthritis or their autoimmune syndrome, but it's very frequently associated with lupus, with rheumatoid arthritis, and other autoimmune syndromes. I always ask about oral ulcers. And, you know, one of the things about oral ulcers, particularly in lupus, is that they can be relatively asymptomatic. I always ask about clotting history. That may have been something in the past. Someone might have had a pregnancy loss in the first or second trimester. You want to make sure you're asking about that. Yeah, that's such a great point because I've definitely stopped at just a history of no clots and not thought about the other ways that antiphospholipid syndrome can present. Yep, been there too. Okay, so let's summarize this quick pearl on high-yield history. So one big takeaway is do not check the ANA for nonspecific symptoms like fatigue, arthralgia, since as we learned in Pearl 1, up to 25% of especially healthy women um, will have a positive ANA. So symptoms that can help you are things like photosensitivity, sicka symptoms, oral ulcers, or now it's a history of pregnancy loss. These things can make you feel a bit more confident in sending that ANA. And of course, go ahead and send the ANA if you have more severe organ inflammation, such as glomerulonephritis or pericarditis. Okay, now that we did a little bit of a history, why don't we do the ever so humbling physical exam? Back to the clinic for this. So many patients have joint pains and they have things like osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia. But when do you send that ANA for a patient with joint pain is the bane of my existence. Arthralgia is such a common presenting complaint that if you send an ANA for arthralgia alone, you're going to end up with a lot of ANAs you're not going to be able to really unpack. Exactly. So this is a little bit of semantics, but technically arthralgias refer to a complaint or symptom of joint pain that you may elicit in the history, which could be from any cause, whereas an inflammatory arthritis is where the money's at and what we're looking for on exam. An inflamed joint is tender, uh, and it's the ability to elicit tenderness in a distribution that's indicative of an inflammatory disease. So that inflamed joint distribution in most ANA-associated autoimmune diseases will look symmetric and typically affect smaller joints, like the small joints of the hands. You're looking for joint swelling, but swelling for the joint has sort of at least two explanations. One is there's more synovium present. The other is actually there's fluid present. A lot of time, especially for rheumatoid arthritis, it's more cellular. It's into extra tissue, so it feels different. It could be boggy. There's texture there. So normal synovium, you, you can't feel, but in RA, you're getting the sense that there's soft tissue present. 
Yeah, trying to figure out if there is more swelling in some of these joints can be quite hard. But the more you examine, the easier it gets. And if the joint is really inflamed, we might see limited range of motion of a joint, joint effusion, and less commonly redness or warmth of the joint. Joints in RA and lupus are not usually red. They're not usually hot, but they are tender and they are swollen. So it's it's easy for an internist to miss uh, arthritis, especially if he or she is looking for a red hot joint, except for gout and sepsis. Most joints are not red and hot. They're just tender and a bit swollen. I, I always object to the pictures they show of arthritis in textbooks. And they say, ah, that's what RA looks like. That's what RA looks like after 30 years. It's not what it looks like when it starts. It may look nothing, just like a normal hand. It's just tender and you can feel swelling. Yeah, and this nicely brings up that sometimes we don't see much on our exam at all, which again adds to just how tough it can be to tease out what patients we should send that ANA on or not. Hence the whole episode on it. <laughs> the struggle is real. Let's switch gears a little bit more and now look at those findings of non-inflammatory joint pain. Generally, non-inflammatory arthritis will not have swelling or pain in very specific joints, but it's not a hard and fast rule. For example, we can see effusions or swelling even in osteoarthritis, but this typically affects the larger joints such as the knees, and we don't normally see OA causing effusions in small joints of the hands, for instance. What about fibromyalgia, though? What on the physical exam can help us differentiate between fibromyalgia or an autoimmune disease? Fibromyalgia is a syndrome of widespread joint and muscle pain, and it's often very chronic. Number one is they have soft tissue tenderness in fairly characteristic locations, shoulder girdle, hip girdle, lateral epicondyles. So lots of soft tissue tenderness. They often have sleep disturbance um, and patients will often tell you it's very chronic. It may be associated with anxiety and depression. And I just want to point out a quick tangent. I've seen over and over again that by addressing sleep disturbance, anxiety, and depression in fibromyalgia, patients' pain can actually get better. I always look for fibromyalgia tender points, but I'm going to really palpate the large muscle groups to just get a sense of how much soft tissue rheumatism is part of the of this arthralgia myalgia complaint complex that we often see in patients with lupus. And then I would say pain out of proportion to the physical findings, also characteristic of fibromyalgia. I really like that differentiator that points towards fibromyalgia, right? Seeing if there's pain outside the joints in those muscle areas like the forearms or thighs. Yeah. I I feel like I have a pretty good approach now, but I would definitely love some more pearls from Dr. Jonas on the physical exam. You really want to do a very careful skin exam, and there may be findings in places that the patient doesn't know. Some rashes in lupus like to hide in the ear particularly discoid. And so I always, I'm looking in the ear. Ah, thank you, Dr. Jonas. All right. So let's recap uh, the physical exam, particularly the skin and musculoskeletal exam are going to help you prioritize autoimmune disease on your differential. We're going to look for tenderness when we palpate joints, especially the small joints on both sides. And if there's swelling in those joints. So you can ask about if there's jointness also in the morning that lasts more than 30 minutes. And if it gets better with activity, But again, that's more a rule of thumb and not all autoimmune disease presents that way. And with fibromyalgia, 
you want to see if there's tenderness not only at the joints, but next to the joint areas and in those larger muscle groups. So say we have a theoretical patient, Miss Smith. This is the one time we're having the last name Smith actually uh, can mean something. <laughs> Um, Ms. Smith, you know, her fingers do turn white in the cold. She has had some hair loss, particularly in like a weird dermatomal distribution. She has some skin sensitivity when she goes outside in the sun. So we go ahead and order that ANA. When we go and order it, what conversation should we be having with her? So I would say to the patient, we are going to order this test. This is a screening test. It is not going to make the diagnosis of lupus. The diagnosis of lupus is made based on many, many other factors, but it may give us some clue and direction that we're going to go in next to try to understand what's happening with you. Okay. I'm definitely taking notes on how Dr. Jonas sets expectations. So when an ANA comes back positive, what then? What should we be thinking about next? So it's important to keep a broad differential diagnosis for a positive ANA because it's not always a rheumatologic condition. I've seen referrals in my clinic where a patient has been told that they have lupus because their ANA is positive. But then when I do some workup and ask further questions, it ends up being something completely different like thyroid disease. Number one is thyroid disease. Um, autoimmune thyroid, thyroid disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis and Graves' disease these patients often have ANAs. So if you're seeing somebody who's got thyroid disease or somebody who may have undiagnosed thyroid disease and they come with thyroid disorders may present with arthralgias, fatigue, and all the usual sort of nonspecific things that we see in early, you know, you know, multi-system autoimmune disease. Well, good old thyroid mimicking even our lab tests. You know, I actually didn't even know anti-nuclear antibodies were not unique to room diseases until I saw Mithu's one-pager on Twitter. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So much wisdom there. Mithu, what other things should we be thinking about? Well, some of the most interesting consults that I've seen in the hospital as a fellow presented as a mimicker of lupus with the positive ANA. And we went down this wild goose chase trying to figure out the diagnosis. And ultimately, they turned out to be hematologic malignancies like lymphoma or even lymphoproliferative disorders like Castleman's. Wow, that is interesting. But I guess it makes sense, right? If we think about patients who have malignancy, they're going to have, you know, somewhat of vague complaints. They might have cytopenias like we see in lupus and I can imagine why an ANA is sent. The other thing that comes to mind is thinking about drugs. I wonder if drugs are associated with positive ANAs. I mean, I feel like medications are always on the differential for everything. Hydralazine is uh, one drug that, you know, it's out there and, and it's often associated with ANAs. There's a whole laundry list of drugs. A lot of the um, anti-epileptic medicines have been associated with ANAs, um, you know, Drug-induced lupus syndromes, um, some of the antipsychotics have been associated with that. The anti-TNF drugs often associated with ANAs, even in the absence of a drug-induced lupus. And let's just add that to my list of reasons why I hate using hydralazine. Hate is a strong word. Let us uh, keep Anne-Marie from going on a, on a bigger rant about that. Um, why don't we move on to our last bucket? that gives us ANA-positivity infections. Malaria has been associated with ANAs. Tuberculosis associated with ANAs. And guys, 
I've seen ANAs with many other infections, including new diagnosis of syphilis, HIV, and even bacterial endocarditis. Ah, mind blown. I feel like rheumatologists are like the real doctor house. They keep getting these positive ANA referrals and then have to figure out what other diseases could be causing it. Yeah, I totally feel like doctor house sometimes. I've seen patients refer to me for positive ANAs and they end up actually having multiple sclerosis. I think it's wild that a lot of the great mimicker diseases also have an ANA as if it's not difficult enough already. But this really hammers the point that we need to expand our differential beyond just rheumatology when we see a positive ANA, especially since the incidence of ANA positivity is rising. And there's a study published relatively recently that the frequency of ANA positivity in the population is rising. It's a well-done study. So in the general population, frequency of ANA is going up. Now, what could that be from? Well, you'd say infection, environmental exposures. What else? That's a really interesting observation that the percentage of healthy population having a positive ANA is going up. And I think maybe even more hammers home the point that ANA is just a screening test, right? It's not a diagnostic test. And maybe if we were to summarize what are the other things that can give us an ANA positive test, It's really these three buckets, right? Hematologic malignancies, infections, and then certain medications like hydralazine, antipsychotics, anti-TNFs, anti-epileptics can all be at play. Okay, back to our theoretical patient, Ms. Smith. We haven't forgotten you. With that positive ANA, what other evaluation should we be sending while we're waiting for that referral? If you think someone has an autoimmune disease and you're going to get an ANA, please get a CBC and a urinalysis. Because I think that tells us a lot when you're sitting in front of a patient who you think might have an autoimmune syndrome. They may have a positive ANA, but if their urinalysis is perfectly fine, i.e. they have no protein or cells, then at least we know they don't have lupus nephritis now. And if their CBC is normal, they're not anemic, they don't have lymphopenia, they don't have thrombocytopenia, they're probably not going to have any other major organ involvement that you have to be particularly worried about. Um, and, and the reason I mention that is because, as, as many of you know, there's a worldwide shortage of rheumatologists. So when you're sitting in your clinic and you've got this patient you're worried about who has a positive ANA, and you pick up the phone to call your rheumatology colleague, and they tell you, you know, I can see your patient six weeks, eight weeks, in some places six months from now, your job is to really try to figure out how sick might this patient be? And if you've got a normal CBC and a normal urinalysis, I think everybody can breathe. Ah, yes. Triaging with a CBC and a UA so we can all breathe. So in addition to the CBC and urine analysis, should we also be sending another ANA titer for trending? So the ANAs go up and down for a lot of reasons. I think the degree to which your body makes the autoantibodies probably changes over time. Then you might send it to a different lab that has a different you know, assay and different standards. This happens all the time. And so truthfully, once I've got a positive ANA in a patient that I diagnosed with lupus, I really don't care what it is in the future. It does not matter. Don't check it again. 
Somebody will always check it again. It doesn't matter. But please don't, you know, try hard not to do that because it's not helpful. Yikes. I can think of quite a few times when a patient with a well-established room diagnosis comes to the hospital and sure enough, that ANA gets sent in the workup. But what are the other laboratory tests that can actually be helpful to follow over time, especially in lupus? Now, I will say the antibodies to double-stranded DNA are a different story. These do go up and down, and in some patients, not all patients, correlate with disease. The same is true for complement levels. So we follow complement levels because if someone's complement has been, you know, doing okay and you measure it and then it drops, that's a sign things might be starting to act up. And the same is true in your CBC for lymphopenia. If you start to see worsening lymphopenia, that might be a sign that the lupus is starting to become more active. That's really helpful. As someone whose favorite tab in the EMR is the trend tab, I am grateful to know that I should look out for trending the double-strand DNA, the complement, and the lymphocytes to get a sense of how this patient with lupus has been doing with their illness and where they are now. Hashtag double-stranded DNA is now trending on Shreya's EMR. (laughs) It really is. I am curious about what other antibodies we should check with that positive ANA. I sometimes feel like after someone's ANA comes back positive, we turn into vampires and take this crazy amount of blood and send off every antibody I once learned about in med school and have now forgotten about. Preach, preach, right? Like we're, we're, we're taught like, okay, the Rho and the law antibodies are slam dunk for Sjogren's. The anti-RNP is slam dunk for mixed connective tissue disease. Does that actually hold up in practice? Some of the other autoantibodies, the RNP antibody um, may be present in lupus. It may also be present in other autoimmune syndromes, such as mixed connective tissue disease or systemic sclerosis. It's not really um, very specific. In very high titer, we tend to associate it with mixed connective tissue disease, but that's not universally true. Antibodies to Rho and La can be seen in lupus, in rheumatoid arthritis, and systemic sclerosis in a lot of different things. They tend to be associated with primary Sjogren's syndrome, um, but they also are associated with many, many other autoimmune diseases. The big thing to remember with all of these autoantibodies is that they often overlap between different autoimmune diseases. Even the classic antihistone antibody that we sit there and study for hours in medical school is so specific for drug-induced lupus can actually be seen in just plain old regular lupus. So humbling. It's like, yes, we have to learn these rules and it makes sense. You know, we have to start somewhere. But I think the more and more I practice, the more I realize medicine is so messy and you have to like unlearn a lot of these like knee-jerk associations we learn over time. Yeah, especially in rheumatology. There are just like so many nuances to unpack. I mean, I've learned a ton just going through this episode. But hydrol you're not off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get Amory started. Okay, let us recap what happens after you get back a positive ANA. It's a good idea to send off a CBC, creatinine, UA, to get a sense of how urgently the patient needs to be seen by room or get more immediate care. Yes, and if you're concerned for an autoimmune disease, you can go ahead and send off those other autoantibodies. Just keep in mind there may be crossover between various autoantibodies and the different autoimmune diseases. And lastly, you don't have to recheck that ANA in a known room diagnosis. And if that diagnosis is lupus, 
You can recheck that double-stranded DNA, complements, and lymphocyte levels because these often correlate with disease activity. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share this with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Please tweet us, leave us a comment on our website, our Instagram or Facebook page. And thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Jason Kolfenbach and Dr. Jacob Mindertsma. And thank you to Doc Shpatia for audio editing and Dr. Lila Atta for the accompanying graphics. As always, we love hearing your feedback. So email us at hello at coriampodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.